You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey everyone, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined with uh, Sexy Irish Sean. He has to be twice the sexy today because Rick is not here with us today. He is, I think he's floating down a river somewhere in the middle of Flagstaff, Arizona. Excited to uh, to be back with you, Sean, because you, you were gone for a while. And- it's been really nice. When I got back, I got a flood of emails from like podcast listeners just like congratulating me on having a child. And it's just, well, that was just really sweet. So you know, thanks to all the listeners out there who, uh, you know, sent me emails. Uh, it was, it was nice to be appreciated. I, I, f- I felt loved. <laughs> I was missed. I love our, our listeners. It's very fun to get even one single email at this point where it's not like we're the Rogan podcast or any, or JRE or anything like that. So just to get a single person, with a, you know, with a comment or in our group, people referencing the podcast and that it's helping. That is pretty awesome. So thank you guys yeah. for being awesome listeners. And now it's time for Nerd News. One thing that I regularly get asked is for clients to sort of give me, ask my opinion on how their campaign is doing and to come up with some type of projection of where they're going to sort of land when it comes to launching. This is important because people want to know how many emails do I need to collect? Uh, what's the sort of chances of them converting? And what, what sort of what are my numbers going to be? And should I be increasing my ad spend? Or should I be decreasing my ad spend? So usually it's to do with, with Facebook ads. Recently, I had a client ask, ask this and I said, well, as I was working this all out saying, why don't I have a spreadsheet that just allows me to put in like three values and then spit out all this information? When we're doing all this math manually, it's taking a while. So that got into my head of creating a Kickstarter success calculator. So what we've developed for you, the listeners, is this Kickstarter success calculator. And all you have to do is put in, I think, four or five values, and it's going to spit out what your potential return on ad spend could be should you get a 10%, 20%, or 30% conversion rate. And what we've done is that we've compiled all the sort of analytics and data of all our past clients, and we sort of used that as a basis of assumptions to sort of generate this data. So it's not gospel, but it's going to help you make a, a decision that hopefully will give you a better understanding of whether you should increase or decrease your ad spend, whether you need to do a little bit more organic marketing, maybe you need to move your launch date. And hopefully it's going to be very a very helpful tool for you. So we'll include a link in the show notes for you to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting because I actually, you know, I've been working on this with uh, Sean for a while and the numbers are pretty solid. Um, you enter the estimated average pledge amount, how many weeks you've got until your launch, the current list size you have, if any, you know, and then how much spend you plan on, you know, on dumping in. Um, there's also the field, which is cost per subscriber. If you happen to know that, then, you know, great. We are typical is $1.50 to $3 per subscriber. So we just put it at a safe $2.50, you know, to for estimates, but it's pretty great. You know, it'll show you your projected email list size when you launch. It'll show your pr- projected backers, you know, how many actual backers you'll earn, what the dollar amount would, would be raised, depending on, of course, your average pledge amount. 
It'll even show you your projected return on ad spend, which is cool if you end up working with a, a, an agency like ours, it'll, that, that type of thing matters. And then um, we even added uh, some additional resources for people to kind of understand what the numbers mean and why they are what they are. Because, you know, we talk about on this, if you're a veteran of this podcast, you may know, you know, the very first episode that we ever did together was about the Kickstarter referral metrics and why, you know, we calculate, you know, and it'll be helpful um, to have some of that information because backers earned from Kickstarter is a, is a metric in there. It's an estimated metric, but, um, you know, we've got all those resources and explainers on, on that spreadsheet for you. I think it's uh, going to be a pretty cool tool for a lot of people. Yeah, let us know what you think of it. So, and how do you get it again, Sean? We'll include a link on the show notes, but if you join our email list, you'll get a welcome email. And it'll be included, a link will be included in that. So that's the a way to download it. And then cool. And it. then we'll share it in our Facebook group too for for this. Oh my goodness, we might even use the at everyone tag. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think one person will quit if if that happens. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. So Facebook has released a new feature, but it's not hasn't been rolled out to every group. But you can almost like on what you can do on Discord. On Discord, you can at everyone, and it sends a no- notification to everyone in, on the on the server. So it's some it's a similar feature, right? But in this case, uh, well, on, in Discord's case, you can actually mute channel. You can mute a server. You you can only you know you can only be notified if there was a specific mention of your name. And in Facebook, everyone you either leave the group or you get the everyone notification. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> And that's caused a little bit of a stir. So I manage, of course, my deliverance groups, um, Facebook pay, or Facebook, uh, ugh, the deliverance Facebook group. And I wasn't able to add an everyone tag to a post, a very important post that I wanted everyone to see on desktop. But then I uh, it was suggested to try mobile and I was able to add the everyone tag using my mobile phone. There's a company called Everyone Cosmetics. And if you type <laughs> at everyone, I mean, they have like 5.5 million fa- followers right now. I think that they're probably a, a huge beneficiary of this, this, this change. Yeah. What if they've got a, or a lot of spam probably. Yeah. But remember Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. That's right. Isn't that in the Bible? <laughs> no, that's Spider-Man. Got a fortune cookie once. <laughs> exactly. Now, in our uh, Facebook group, we have a great conversation about this uh, where everyone told me to, hey, whoa, 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 man, pump the brakes on that everyone tag. Be careful. I'm going to quit your group if you use it once and uh, go jump into that conversation. It was very interesting. And, uh, you know, that people were using the Danger Will Robinson memes and everything was, uh, was coming out. Yeah, we had a good, con- a good time. In other news, I shared this on our Facebook community as well. Kickstarter implemented a, uh, or is implementing a new feature that allows creators to take action against toxic behavior. It used to be that a, you know, if you wanted to troll someone, you could go back for a dollar, say some trollish comment, because, you know, as a uh, backer, you have your privilege to be able to comment on a Kickstarter page you know, in the case of comments, right? And and then you can just unback, you can uh, cancel your pledge. And that caused a lot of problems for, for honest creators trying to 
you know, run a good campaign, they always have what I call the mall cop of Kickstarter. The person who's like, you know, cease and desist your Kickstarter campaign until you fix this one thing that's so important. I've notified the president about this and you won't get away with it. It's like, oh my goodness, this is a crazy person. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know how to deal with this. Now you can actually flag a comment for hateful or toxic conduct, basically. And Kickstarter will review it. If they agree with you, they will actually forbid that account from from backing or seeing your campaign anymore. I think another another important feature is that when you submit it for review, it automatically hides the comment. Ah. So that's that's an important feature to mention. And this is where this could be a very useful tool, but it could be a tool used to abuse honest feedback on campaigns where yep. you have malicious creators who are banning or reporting legitimate criticisms. And then yep. it's sort of in this indefinite hidden mode and it's just being used to hide comments because my suspicion is that they're going to need a huge team to manually review every comment on Kickstarter that's being flagged, especially if there's bad actors throwing up false flags. This could very quickly be used as a tool just to silence people that have legitimate concerns. I think there's a better way around this. I don't think this is a great implementation of what they're trying to do, but I do think it's a step in the right direction. So mm -hmm. it's nice to see some type of change, but I do, I do think that this is going to get pretty abused pretty quickly. I think they're going to learn. I think they're going to burn their fingers pretty fast implementing this feature. Yeah. You know, at, at first I thought it was a great thing, but you know, just thinking about it a little bit more, it's, um, you know, like you said, playing, it's like playing with fire. The cre it's very good for the creators, but it doesn't, it's not going to do any favors to toxicity or, or rather to toxic creators. It's going to enable and empower them to kind of get away with potentially more. But, you know, the thing is, I don't really see a ton of toxic creators. I, I think that you will have some bad actors that will you know, we'll hide comments that say, Hey, is, is the game delivered yet? Where's my game? It's been three years. You know, you'll start to see comments hidden from things like that. <laughs> Hopefully Kickstarter figures its stuff out and puts in a, um, you know, some automated, you know, systems that, um, you know, can protect. It would have been really nice if the guy that trolled my mom for the entire campaign uh, that I ran would have been just, Kicked. You know, banned and kicked way early. Oh my goodness. It would have saved so much of my mental energy. Yeah. And, you know, there were other people that in, in other campaigns that we've run or helped, you know, done ads for where uh, like the latest mantle of the keeper Kickstarter that we, that we helped with, there was a troll that was just like nonstop going after someone that was really actually trying to sell a service and uh, trying to make the creator scared so that he would hire him to, you know, for some, and pay him some money for a service. It was really a scam more than a troll. And it would have been nice if he could have just, you know, banned him and ignored him. Well, you do what you do is you use Grabify, which is an IP logger, and it's a URL shortener. So you can say, hey, if you want to leave a suggestion, follow this link. When they click it, you can then expose their IP, you know, where they, they're based and you can threaten them. <laughs> yeah, and, and <laughs> you can visit their house. Yeah, knock on their door. What hey. happens when an 11-year-old answers? <laughs> you Is know? your dad here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
what do you think the solution is? I was thinking, how could they fix this problem? And maybe what they should do, and maybe this will also counter the flipping and flopping, you know, backers have on the platform where they back something and then three seconds later, they're canceling their pledge and backing something else. What if they said, well, in order to comment, you have to pledge at a certain level. Maybe you have to have like the first entry pledge. You can't just pledge a dollar. Well, the I don't think that that solves it necessarily because, you know, I can pledge a hundred thousand dollars and then um, just cancel my pledge. Cancel pledge. So this is what I'm thinking. Yeah. What, what if they had a system in place? If you cancel your pledge, that there's a processing fee of some sort where the creator and Kickstarter, so there's a penalty. So basically it's going to make people a bit more cautious on what they back. So they're not going to flip and flop. But then it also is going to decentivize trolls because in order to troll, you're going to have to actually spend money, which I don't think anybody is that dedicated to troll to think, spend money. See, I, I think an, an unfortunate side effect of that would be to change backer behavior and that could hurt Kickstarter's bottom line. So I don't think that they would touch that uh, with a 10-foot pole. But I, I think that if you were to implement a system that, n- number one, Kickstarter just does not have the bandwidth for this as far as their, um, like you pointed out, they don't have the staff to, to to deal with this if it happens to get out of hand. So what I would suggest is put it into the hands of people. Um, like Reddit, it does an upvote downvote system. Yeah. I think that certain comments the creators can uh, downvote, and it, you know if a bunch of people upvote versus you know the creators downvoting, it should show anyway. And because I think something that the creator might not like but is constructive feedback that others agree with um, should always be seen, I think. And then things that are trollish, the creator may not even happen or may not even have to deal with. Um, Like in a somewhat recent update of mine, I had a guy that just got salty and he commented for probably at left like 20 comments on my uh, Kickstarter comment section or various updates just saying about how everything that I was doing was was not good for one reason or another or subpar. And everybody was laughing about how ridiculous his his comments were and how thin hit, you know, how he was reaching for for straws, right? And I think that if something like that happens, it would have it would have just been downvoted by the by the other users. And I wouldn't yeah. even I may not have even ever seen it. That's a good idea, because that's something that GameFound implements. You can upvote and downvote comments yeah. and yeah, i think yeah. another disadvantage of game found and this is i think where kickstarter does does a better job is that anyone can comment on your campaign they don't have to back so you know can mm-hmm. just go create a fake account you know with a new email and just like completely troll your own campaign yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at least there's that element in kickstarter where there's a bit of a, a bit of a roadblock which you have to upload your credit card information and submit your essentially submit your id right because you've got your credit card information they have your house address and all your bank details (laughs) yeah and i do think that it it helps when you know let's say uh somebody on the internet gets mad and posts on a public forum if you don't need any sort of verification if you don't really need to even make an account or if the only thing they need is an email address just give them the aol email that you used in you know 1996 and it's like whatever but i think that accountability begins with identification uh, anonymity is why dota 2 is the worst game in the world it's because it's so toxic there are very i mean i don't know what it's like now but it was just dota 1 and 2 
you start playing a game and your team cusses you out before the game even starts, before anyone is picked a hero, you're getting cussed out. And there's just no recourse because everyone's anonymous and acts like a 12-year-old, you know, that just learned curse words. And I I think that uh, anonymity is a bad thing when it comes to any kind of crowdfunding platform. You need people to be verified humans and to know that their behavior comes at a possible cost of their reputation. So we wanted to discuss a topic which was related to entitlement. A lot of people talk about backer entitlement and, you know, in some, you know, like what we were talking about with this whole Kickstarter news, backers act like children sometimes. And it's really just disrespectful. You know, sometimes backers will just be outright childish and disrespectful and they are, you know, or they ask a bunch of questions and act like they're interested and they say, oh, I backed this for that solo mode. And, you know, they were, they were a backer and you give them every answer that they wanted. And it's like, perfect. The backer loves this game now because we unlock solo mode and then they cancel their pledge for some other reason that you don't know. Maybe they wanted some other shiny thing. It's just, you know, backers are uh, can be quite entitled. And I, I don't think that that's a surprise to anybody that's listening to this podcast that's run a Kickstarter before. But I, we had a conversation recently in our Facebook group. It was actually a really very productive and a, a awesome conversation with Christopher Bowden. He actually um, started this conversation and in it, he kind of committed to listening to a couple of podcasts a week. So he'll listen to this at some point a year from now, probably when he gets to through the podcast and he taught, you know, we kind of got into backer entitlement, you know, some, some of the various commenters and then others, I, I kind of felt like there was a little bit of creator entitlement going on where they were saying, you know, backers should really change their behavior because it's getting difficult to, you know, run a Kickstarter, you know, with this whole, you know, with the the market kind of maturing, you have to spend a lot of money to run a successful Kickstarter now compared to what you used to be able to do. And it shouldn't be that way, you know? And I think that the, the intent of the, uh, the comment was not coming from a, a negative place or anything. You know, it is frustrating as a new person to, to try to make it in Kickstarter now versus, you know, you look at like 2012 when Cards Against Humanity came with a really kind of a flat idea with black and white cards and they raised $14,000 and now they're in every single, you know, place that sells things. It's, uh, you know, you can use to be able to come to Kickstarter with an idea and people would be able to pay to make it a reality. And now it's like you, you have to prepare a whole lot more. You have to invest a lot more money into things like art. I mean, there were games that had, you know, 5% of their art finished uh, or 10% of their art finished uh, that were getting attention. And now it seems like you have to have like at least half of your art finished and make sure all of the right pieces had been finished. So that the the person uh, you know the the thread was kind of a lamentation of the the state of affairs of today and i kind of felt like it would be a really interesting discussion to bring up not only backer entitlement but also creator entitlement 
What, what do you think, Sean? Currently, just reading this post, maybe we should include just so we have a bit of context because you mentioned Christopher Bowden. In essence, the, the the thought is like if he made a whole lot more money than his funding goal, like what things could possibly cause him not to deliver? And he he asked, so he asked us a, a question um, about that, like to explain catastrophic success. And then he asked the second question that really inspired all the conversation. He said this, the bar of entry seems so incredibly high, even impossibly so. I feel like this will lead to many talented designers and creative games never seeing the light of day. And people just want to attempt to crowdfund. And to me, that's a problem. We should be trying to make crowdfunding and the job of the game designer more accessible. You're doing, you're, oh, oh, and then he patted us on the shoulder a little bit. And he said, but how do we get more games to the market by underrepresented people? And not just the same dozen publishers with deep marketing pockets. Um, or is that not what's wanted? Because that's sometimes how it feels. And I don't think I'm the only one that feels that way. Is it an industry problem or a consumer problem? No, it's interesting because I think we touched on this in the previous episode with Pierre, the creator of Tiny Folks. And he's a, a single indie developer creating a video game. And he did everything himself. The pixel art, the music, the coding the game design and released it on steam and has a successful game on steam and you say well how can a single person who's creating an indie video game compete against billion dollar studios that have massive platforms massive advertising budgets and i think it's it's the same concepts that we covered in the previous episode where it's about craftsmanship it's about carving out a niche and building a, a community around a very specific thing which larger bigger companies cannot do it does come to a stage where your company becomes so big that you become a faceless corporation and that you can leverage that disadvantage to your advantage by being a small, independent, face-to-face kind of game developer that can really build a strong, tight-knit community that can get things funded. So I think there's advantages and disadvantages. Now, yes, the barrier of entry is, is high for Kickstarter. It's getting harder. But I suppose it's the nature of business, isn't it? It's the nature of anything. You know, going to California and digging gold would, would have been easy at one stage. <laughs> try try to go there now. You know, you'll yeah. find any. <laughs> you know, there's a, a vein that can be tapped. And this is why jumping on on trends, getting in, in on early on trends can be can be so popular. I think gaming is always going to exist. And I think people are always going to have a desire to play new content and experience yeah. new things and sit around as the table. As long as there's demand, there's going to be people to satisfy that demand. So yeah, I think the, the key takeaway is is carving out a niche and that there's going to be advantages and disadvantages. And yes, it, it can be a difficult entry point, but nothing ventured, nothing gained. There's a, there's a point where you have to kind of stick your neck out and try and see if something has legs. Uh, there's many projects which I personally thought, I don't know this if this has legs, we're taking a risk. You know, well, I, I think they're taking a risk. I don't know if this is going to do well. And they're very successful. So you can't always determine if something's going to succeed or fail based off your own personal bias or, or prejudice. Right. I, I think, you know, there are probably other people that have thought of your idea and said, nah, that's a terrible idea. And you take it and make something amazing happen with it. It's uh, not necessarily about the idea itself, but it's about the implementation of the idea, right? And so I definitely, uh, I think that it kind of boils down to make something that people care about and you'll have a much easier time with the rest. 
you're still going, I mean, no matter what it is, you're still going to have to claw and scratch for every bit of fame that your product gets. But, you know, if you make something awesome, it's going to cause everything else to be a little bit easier, a lot easier. And I think that some people will uh, go to Kickstarter with a subpar or mediocre product and say, you know, I didn't have the money to invest in the art and I didn't have a million dollars to put into marketing. And, you know, that's why it failed. And I think that that's actually a cop out in most cases. If you wanted to, I mean, if I had no money for deliverance, I know that I could have found 300 people that were willing to kind of believe in the idea and work with those people to just build the community and talk about and just work on the game with the mechanics by itself. I know that there would be at least 300 people that I could convince to back the game. Might not have been a very cool looking game because, you know, at, at that level, you can't really do amazing art. I, you know, and on that subject, I also think that people, especially first time creators, tend to bite off more than they can chew as far as the the amount of game. I, I, I recollect that, you know, Deliverance is a very big game. And it's, I mean, the art budget was like astronomical. It felt like, it felt like a, it just cost me like six figures just to even make it. There was this one moment that I, I realized, you know, I, I originally was like, all right, every single card needs to have a unique piece of art and it's going to look awesome. It's going to be amazing. It's like every card needs to be like Magic the Gathering, how they have unique art. It's like, yeah, but they have a big budget. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to make it like Magic. So as I was developing, I realized that not only could I shrink the size of my cards, but I could remove the unique art from almost all of them. And instead, I could use the text as art. And that saved me $15,000 or more when you look at the amount of cards that didn't require unique art. And then in other cases, card backs, you know, I, I, you know, one unique art piece for the various decks, uh, would, which would be the card back. And then the text was the artful piece on the other side of the card. And it saved a ton of money. I, I really don't think that I could have designed deliverance if I, I, I don't think that I could have finished the project. I just wouldn't have enough money to take it to a place where it was ready for Kickstarter if I was insistent about maintaining a unique art piece. It reminds me of a game that I developed for my son and it started off as like a big board game, big box and had all these like different mechanics. And it was like, it was so expensive to produce. Like, okay, I need to go back and redesign it. So like I kept on bringing it down and eventually I got to like a deck of cards and a, and a die. And I was thinking, no, I don't even need a die. I could just add like numbered cards, like one to six and then you randomly draw one. And then that's, that's basically your ra randomized system. And then I, by not having a die, it reduced the cost even more. And it means I could even put in an even smaller box. So just by, by changing your, your design strategy, you can really reduce the cost of production and increase your profitability and, and, and sort of mitigate a lot of those expenses that you that can come about if you have an unlimited budget. But when you're on a shoestring budget, you need to be very intentional of every little detail in your game and how, how it can come out. Yeah, I think, um, you know, everybody wants to create this, epic, massive story driven game that has, you know, miniatures like 150 miniatures and, you know, a, a thousand cards or more with randomly generated dungeons and then, you know, merchants with randomized loot and all of this crazy progression. 
But to do something like that is likely like the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. This foe is beyond any of you. This foe is beyond any of you. Run! So, run! Yeah, run. <laughs> Fly, you fools. So, uh, yeah, I think that part of the, I, I think maybe the creator entitlement comes from where where they, they're looking at, at a problem of, you know, I have this really cool concept, but no way to realize this. And I think that you could totally maybe start with another game that doesn't take as much, as many resources, build your company slower instead of looking for a game that's going to make you a million dollars on your first project. Look for a game that's going to make you $10,000. That's a deck of cards that you could actually print without spending a million um, to, to, you know, on the art. And, you know, I think business above all things teaches humility. I, I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It's one of the things I love. And there are people that will start it and will say, this is fun. And then they get choked out and they're like, this is not for me. You know, there are people that are very, very successful college wrestlers that come into a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu gym and they're like a black belt on, on top. And I choke them out because they leave their head out or I armbar them because they leave their arm out and they just can't take being humbled like that. So they don't return because they lose. They're not, they're not good at it right now. So they don't want to, they don't want to, you know, go through that, that period of being bad so that they can eventually get to the top of the food chain. I think um, in, in some ways, creators of, uh, you know, publishers, aspiring publishers can be the same way where, they're not ready to put their nose to the grindstone. One thing that, you know, being in business has taught me, you know, just with the marketing agency that, that we have is that I had to grind hard for every single little victory. And there were lots of defeats along the way. And I still in, encountered the same thing. And, you know, to this day, but how I started deliverance was I need to make sure this thing exists. I need to make sure it's done right. I believe that if I can show people what's in my head, that they'll jump on board. And Sean, like you said, I thought if this idea is going to be, I'm, I think the idea is great, but I need people to affirm that by following and showing interest and so on. So I actually made a, even though I'm, I'm a marketing agency owner with uh, resources, I, you know, Hey, if I want to spend 20 bucks a day on ads, I've got an employee that can, just run the ads for me. I really felt strongly that the game needs to be, it needs to develop a following because people want it, not because they have money or means to advertise, but because I shared it in a Facebook group and people said, Hey, that's awesome. I want to know more about that. And I did, you know, local conventions that were inexpensive to go to, you know, that were near my house. I did Facebook group sharing and other things like that. I managed to build an email list to over a thousand people. It was like almost 1100 people by the time I spent my first 20 bucks on, on ads. And that group, those first 1100 really were responsible for a massive amount of the, the funding that we raised and uh, not to mention bringing other backers uh, as well. But it came from a place of, this needs to exist. It needs to be implemented in the right way. I have a vision for it. I believe we can do it if we do it right. And then of course, learning all of the, you know, the mistakes and the things not to do, like how you shouldn't be spending $150,000 on your card art 
uh, for eight unique individual cards. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, you're going to learn lessons along the way, but I do think that you should set your sights on something that is realistic for you in your current situation and use that to cut your teeth. I kind of, like I, you know, with this long rant, I just feel like I kind of cut my teeth on business. And so I had that and I was able to store up a little money and, you know, I put a home equity line of credit. I, I mortgaged my house to attempt deliverance, uh, which is not something I would recommend, but you know, if you believe in your idea, you know, find a way to make it happen, I guess. Do you think some of this, I suppose this mentality, you could call it an entitlement mentality comes through a, like cultural upbringing. I, I suppose, you know, when you think of like Disney films, a lot of the sort of pervading idea, what, like growing up watching those film, films is you can, you can do whatever you want. You can be anything you want to be. The reality is you can't. <laughs> There's certain limiting Cinderella. factors on you know, everyone's. There's certain limiting factors in everyone's existence that they can't do everything they want. Like I'm never going to be a Michael Jordan. You know, you've seen the size of me. It's like not going to happen ever. I'm never going to be a heavyweight champion at anything. There's certain things which you cannot do in it. And one way recognizing that is the first step, I think, to success because you have to recognize your weaknesses, but then your strengths. And then how can I leverage my strengths and choose a career path or choose something that Mm -hmm is going to have the greatest likelihood of success. So I think maybe a lot of people think that I should just succeed because yep. I desire it. And I suppose <laughs> life isn't always about what we what we desire. And there's going to be lots of disappointments in life along the way. And I think as a business owner, you have to be someone who enjoys pain or if you can get up, it's kind of like Rocky, you know, he gets knocked down, he gets back up again, he keeps on training and eventually he wins the championship. And it's, yep. it's like that in business, you're going to fail a lot learn a lot and do a lot of things wrong before something eventually sticks. And I think it's having that persistence, that diligence, and just that, that fortitude to endure <laughs> eventually means that you're going to see success. And you might, you might not ever see success, and that's just life, I suppose. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I just, I kind of thought of, I thought of two things. I, I thought of uh, Cinderella, which I'll, I'll come back to. And then I thought of the NBA and, and just basketball. LeBron James is like six foot nine or something like that. You know, a lot of the best are very, very tall. And if you're, you know, five, five or five, six, you're not going to be, you know, significantly disadvantaged. (laughs) Right. But you know, what I think about is, you know, what can you control? What can you do? And I think some of the shortest NBA players are uh, like, like five and a half feet tall. You know, there are NBA players that are 5'5", five, 5'6", five, 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 A lot of them are point guards. They're not defenders that are going to jump to try to stop a ball from going in the net, you know, but they're going to um, steal the ball and, and other, you know, pass and, and make plays like that. And you can make a great impact as, as a short person in the NBA, you know. I think that so much about the mindset and what I find is that as you are on your journey, you know, a door closes – another opens. Uh, and I think that it's very important to just follow, follow the money, follow what's working and lean into that. Don't, you know, if you, if you come to marketing, for example, with your ideas and say, and, or even, uh, you know, you make a game and say, I'm going to make this work the way that I want in the implementation that I want, you're going to make a product that is not great in 99.99999% of cases. It's just not going to be great. 
because you need feedback. Other people have great ideas that you should implement. You're going to need to kill your darlings, as they say, which means um, maybe remove that auction system that you really like. Uh, Gil Hova has a story about his auction mechanic that seems to start every one of his games that he's ever made and also get eliminated from every game that he's ever made before it's uh, published. It's just one of those things that you have to be willing to listen to what the market is telling you. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I think with, uh, you know, as we're kind of dubbing it creator entitlement or um, they are kind of refusing to listen to what the market is telling them. And they're blaming their difficult times on external factors that, you know, and not looking internally. I think that uh, it's, it's not always 100% your fault, but I think that if you're listening to the market, then you're going to stand a much better chance. I wanted to bring up Cinderella as well, because, you know, you talked about Disney movies and a lot of them are, you know, follow your dreams. It can be whatever you want to be. And Cinderella was, was not that way. She ended up in a really terrible situation. And depending on which version of the story you're listening to, her dad married a bad lady and then died in some way. And now she's stuck as a maid in a really terrible, awful situation. And then one day her fairy godmother comes and rescues her from this situation, you know, the situation that she's in gives her a way out. Like the book of Ruth. So let's call it getting lucky. You know, let's call it getting lucky. You know, you bought a lottery ticket and you made 350 million. I think that a lot of the time people are looking for the one thing. I just need Elon Musk to retweet it or retweet it or something, you know, I don't know, but they, they want the short, it's like a shortcut to success by standing on the shoulders of, of a giant or getting a lucky break. And, you know, maybe having Tom Vassell say, wow, this game is so amazing. And then or Rado, and then a bunch of people buying it because of that. I think that whenever yeah, I've seen somebody inherit an amazing reward from, you know, from their, their, their labor where they send a, a game to somebody and then they rave about it, it's not lucky. It's when opportunity meets preparedness, right? The, the idea of diligently working hard for years and years and years to finally become an overnight success. That is, I think the whole, I, I think a lot of people look at Cinderella and say, I think I need to just get lucky and, you know, I'll go from rags to riches. And that's not how it is. You have to be diligent and suffer. You will suffer as a business owner a lot. I've tried to remove the word luck from my vocabulary because I actually think it's, it's very dangerous. I feel a lot of interviews of you know successful people and they say, well, I just got lucky. It's in the right place at the right time. I just got lucky. And that's all well and good. But what happens when you reverse it? And what happens if you're unlucky? If you're just unlucky, well, then you're, there's nothing that you're going to try to do to change your circumstance. It's like, well, I rolled the die. And this is where the die lands. And I just, I guess I'm unlucky. This is just life. I'm unlucky. But I think if you have a mentality, everything happens for a reason. And you, you have choices, you have decisions. I think that's a far healthier mentality than just saying, I got lucky or I got unlucky. And it's just like, it's kind of like you're a tree in the wind blowing mm -hmm. here and there. But if you have a, a kind of more of a, a, I would say a more rational understanding to circumstances in your life, you can say, well, it's not just bl blind luck. As you said, it's your preparation and there's these things that are contributing to it. Times are hard, but is there a way out of this corner that I'm backed into? 
I think that's a far healthier mentality just to be like, oh, I'm unlucky. This is just how things are. And I think that can yeah. be a very dangerous mentality when it's reversed. You can say, well, I'm lucky. Isn't it great? But suddenly if you're unlucky, then you can find yourself in a very depressed state. And I don't think that's particularly helpful or healthy. Yeah. You know, because I don't, I don't want to uh, make it all about the, all about, you know, you on, you know, listening to this podcast and, and how you just need to chin up and try harder and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, there, there are legitimate points. Um, the person that uh, that responded, uh, I had a really great conversation with. There were a couple of points that I brought up that I felt like were, were worth repeating. The first one is that the customer, as you know, or the backer, right? The, their idea was, hey, you know, the, the backer should be doing more to help the crowdfunding campaign and, and so on and so forth. And uh, my, my response was that the issue with customers is that they don't care about you. They only care about themselves. And you are a consumer. If you're listening to this and you bought things, there's a reason that you have certain games on the shelf and that they're not mine. You wanted the games you wanted and you know maybe you are a backer of Deliverance and maybe not. But the, the, the reality is that you made that choice because it was a thing that you wanted or there was a thing you wanted more. Of course, you know, maybe you never heard of Deliverance, in which case you should go to deliverancethegame.com and then make your own decision. <laughs> but the idea is that a customer, you included, don't owe anyone anything. But you simply, uh, or the customer rewards great ideas and also meaningful relationships. And I think that um, there's a certain level of altruism or, you know, the desire to see your fellow uh, publishers succeed that runs among game designers and, and like, as a general rule, small business owners, you know, uh, but that doesn't exist between customers and the companies whose products they buy. You're, you're just, if, if I want it, I'll buy it. If I don't, then you'll never know because I'm just a face in a sea of faces. It's, it's a good idea to put yourself in the shoes of a consumer and say, I have a limited amount of disposable income that I can spend on one thing or another. Why should I, uh, I think it's a fair question to ask, why should I give that disposable income to you instead of save it or instead of pay for Netflix another month or buy a, a competing product on Kickstarter that seems more interesting? And I, I think that that's a fair question to, to ask as a customer. So what you can do as the, um, the publisher is really establish meaningful relationships with people they will buy inferior products if they have a relationship with one person or another it happens all the time that's basically how multi-level marketing companies exist a lot of their products um, are like their flagship products are really really great which is why their company you know ex exists still like advocare sells spark and i use a lot of spark it's like a coffee replacement in essence but they have a ton of other products that are inferior to rival companies. However, I will use the whatever vitamins or that kind of thing from this company because I have a relationship with somebody. You know, you had mentioned early on in this podcast that you grow large enough, you become a faceless company. And I think that probably the largest example of a, a brand that I can think of that has such a good personal relationship with their audience is Brandon Sanderson. You know, that multi, multi-millionaire they just sneeze and make $40 million on Kickstarter. Yeah, well, you know, even you mentioned Elon Musk earlier, even 
him. He's got such a, a big fan fandom. You know, I think he could release anything and people will buy it. At this stage. Yeah. yeah, he's coming out with a phone. I think just the fact that his name is attached to it, people are going to say, "Oh, this guy launched a rocket into space. I should buy this phone." You know, and Apple's got a massive, unless it's a huge flop or something. I, I predict that that phone's going to going to take a pretty healthy chunk of market share. Yeah, um, you know, which is but, good. Uh, we need some more competition in the phone space. I just think it's going to kill Android and iPhones. It's just going to be iPhone and then the X phone or whatever. Unless <laughs> X is a big flop, but we'll see. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess that's, you know, maybe maybe a little bit about how talk, I think of it. Another category to think of is backer entitlement. And this is where they see Kickstarter as, I, I suppose, an online store. And it's, here's my money, give me the thing when really it's a it's a pledge it's i believe in this idea so i don't know if you want to dig into that andrew sure yeah yeah backers you know people tend to buy products that seem custom tailor-made for them i use the example sometimes of a a a general store a grocery store in like the 1900s you know in the uh, early 1900s you've got the general store you know owner that knows you and your name and how many gallons of milk you need every week and, and all of that. And so, you know, people would always shop there because that was probably the only place to shop for 20 miles, but also the guy knew them, cared about them and, and and that sort of thing and had their exact order down. But uh, so now in 2022 on Kickstarter and GameFound, you'll have people that look at a product and say, this is 95% the way there, but I just want this one change. And they'll be so hardcore about that one thing. And in some cases, they'll say, I won't even back this game unless you do this. It's like, sorry, man, it's 30 bucks. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you have to sometimes turn backers down in, in a variety of ways. You know, not always, uh, they don't always give you an ultimatum, but, you know, sometimes they want, um, I don't know, bring up Deliverance again. A lot of people really want the demons to be playable characters. And, it's, and I just, uh, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, maybe it's caused some people not to back the game, but I just think that, you know, if I were to cave to what some, what those backers want, then it would hurt other backers feelings. And, you know, you have to make your stand somewhere and, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it, it is important to be flexible because sometimes the backers constructive feedback is really going to help you. But in other cases, you may look at that feedback and say, this is not in the best interest of the product or this is not in the best interest of me. You know, I had had one backer say, you know, I really, really want the deluxe edition, but I don't want the minis. So can you like take the minis out of the box before you ship it to me? It's like, you know, <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> it's just one of those things like, yeah. One of the cool things. To a friend or yeah. Something. You know, like with board games, you can homebrew so many things. Like there's no reason why someone couldn't, create their own home rules to like make demons playable put a little bit of effort and <laughs> i know you're taking my game and making an abomination but uh you know like even like with the minis like yeah get the minis and sell them on i'm sure there's gonna be someone in your community is like oh i should have got the minis <laughs> you know and you know that's a perfect place to sell them or yeah i want two sets because one of them broke yeah uh you know one one really common instance of backer entitlement would be when uh, you know, this whole shipping situation. Yeah, that's a good example. People are very 
upset about campaigns being delayed or having to pay more for shipping than they expected. You know, they are convinced that you're making money hand over fist. You should be selling it to me wholesale because you're making a ton of money on Kickstarter. And they have, I think, in, in many cases, backers have an ignorance about them that uh, that is to would be to the project's harm if you listen to that person. And in the end, if you gave them wholesale, they don't really care. It's like they don't yeah. care about you at all. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier in this podcast that there was a, a guy who kind of got upset about a recent update I did and just said everything was was subpar. Everything was bad. You know, every prototype component was why this one was bad, why that one was bad. And the other backers were like, this guy's kind of ridiculous. Like, it, the main reason he was mad was because I told people that, hey, the uh, the base game moving forward the deluxe game was orders of magnitude more popular. The base game is something that we're going to be giving people the product we promised, but in the future, we're not going to be supporting this base game. We're going to be retooling the base game for retail and, you know, in the future. And so if you want the, um, all the deluxe components, get the deluxe game, but we will not be offering the expansion to upgrade the base game to the deluxe component or game in the future. That's why he, he was upset because he said, you're just trying to take money from people that don't that don't have it. People that are poor and quoted a bunch of Bible verses at me about how the wealthy abuse the poor and and that sort of thing. And then I go look at his pledge, and he already had the deluxe game. He he upgraded months before, and I was like, why is this guy complaining? Like, we should say is well, uh, we're going to take your advice, and instead of delivering the product, we're going to. Give it to a charity. <laughs> Your place yeah. to a charity. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Beyond all else, the advice that I would have for trying to avoid, because a lot of the time we can't really tell if we're being entitled or if our concerns are valid and so on, um, or both. I think it's really important to have a room of counselors that can tell you if you're crazy or not, that are willing to be honest with you, that are willing to help you. Um, some of my greatest helpers are my playtesters, you know, if, um, the people playing your, your products, if they aren't willing to tell you the truth about something being bad or good or just not working or, you know, this game really needs minis or whatever, then, you know, I, I suggest working on your room of counselors, right? Because yeah. when they're, when counsel is uh, plentiful, I think that, uh, that's how wars are won, right? So diplomacy. Yeah. So go get some counselors. Okay, Richard, take us out. Boom. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.